Thank you, worship team. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Dave Shire. I am a youth pastor and a marriage and family therapist, and I uh, volunteer with the young adult group here at Lebanon Area E Free Church, and I am honored and slightly nervous about bringing a message this morning. I used to get nervous like a week ahead of time. This was years ago. And I worked that back to a day and then an hour. And now I don't get nervous till I get up here and look at y'all. So yeah, you're good looking. But I, um, yeah, it's an interesting experience. You should try it sometime. So I'm very thankful for this opportunity because of the subject matter is something that's kind of close to my heart. And the title of this morning's sermon is called True Grit. When you hear the word grit, Tell somebody near you what comes to mind. Anything. What do you think of when you hear the word grit? Pastor Ken asked me to speak this morning uh, kind of in between two series, the series on uh, Different Like Jesus from Philippians, and the next series, I believe, is on the I Am statements about Christ. And um, this, this kind of sandwiches in between with Dan's message last week, just trying to pull some thoughts together. Um, this is what came out. Um, True Grit, when Ken asked me to talk this morning, he asked me to talk about some common themes that come into the counseling office, some things that are repeated themes. And I think when we look at the four things that I'm going to talk about this morning, um, they overlap and they are really common most of the time, if not all of the time. Um, And we're using the grit word as an acronym to describe these four things that come into a counseling office. So this might feel a little heavy at times because stuff that comes into a counseling office is heavy. And people's hurts and concerns come in the room. So we're using GRIT as an acronym to describe something. The definition of GRIT, there's two definitions. We're going to use both of them this morning. The first one is GRIT can be something abrasive and irritating, like something in your eyeball. You ever get that? It feels like it's this big, but it's a little tiny thing in your eyeball. Um, other things that would cause us to feel grit in life, something abrasive, something irritating. Um, what are some things that we use the word grit for? Sandpaper, people grit their teeth in their sleep. Um, and again, that thing that gets in your eyeball, that's how my eyes feel in the fall every year. That's allergies. That's actually grit. That's pollen that gets in the eyes and irritates. And um, so grit can be symbolically those things that irritate us, that drive us crazy, that hurt, that interrupt our focus, our goals, that, that, that just disrupt life as we expect it or want it. That can be grit. Um, but it could also be something else. Grit can be a character trait. Uh, trait which I believe God's people are equipped with and called to. That character trait, by definition, is courage and resolve, strength of character. I think of this guy a little bit. Can anybody name this actor? John Wayne. Can anybody name this character? I, I heard it. I heard it. A lot of people knew it. Rooster Cogburn. This is from a movie called True Grit. And Rooster Cogburn is a character who models the traits of grit. In fact, the girl that rubs him the wrong way in this movie and he has to work with to help find a murderer, um, she refers to him as a man with true grit. He's equipped with courage and resolve and strength of character. So we're going to talk about worldly grit, the grit that the enemy wants to use to break God's people and affect and infect how we function. And we're going to talk about godly grit, the courage and resolve kind of grit that we can implement into our lives that's going to make us move forward um, as confident uh, leaders and followers, leaders of people and followers of Christ. Psychology. I, I want it to be no mistake that psychology is not a fake science. Um, psychology and Christianity can work in harmony together. So I'm going on that presumption this morning that um, psychology is a thing. And I think it's something that Christian psychologists and mental health care workers um, are very good at the Venn diagram of psychology 
and Christianity overlapping, and both can be in the room at the same time. So with that presumption in mind, here's what psychology says about grit. Grit is a positive, non-cognitive trait based on a person's perseverance. You hear the biblical words in here? Of effort combined with passion for a particular long-term goal or end state. This perseverance of effort helps people overcome obstacles or challenges to accomplishment and drives people to achieve. Today we will discuss both kinds of grit, that psychological and Christian kind of grit that we're called to, but there is grit that gets in the way of that too. Um, we're going to use this acronym to explain ways that the enemy tries to pester us, weaken us, even paralyze us, or even destroy God's people. I hope I'm causing you to think a little bit what, what kinds of things cause you to feel grit in life. What kinds of things rub you the wrong way? I'm not going to ask for interaction or sharing or tell your neighbor, but what kinds of things rub you the wrong way? Things that irritate our soul, they damage our relationships. They bring us grief, leave us feel angry or alone or break us. Or it could just be the way someone talks to you or maybe their very voice. It rubs you like sandpaper on sunburn or a behavior, or a lack of behavior that leaves you feeling disappointed or even angry and enraged, or even abandoned or broken. Or maybe it's something minor, like somebody cuts you off in traffic. It doesn't take long to get over that, but boy, does that interrupt your thought for the moment. It gets in the way. That is gritty. Maybe it's something like someone fouled your kid on a sports field and you're out of control. You can't do anything about it except yell at the officials. Um, didn't call it, but those are smaller things in life, but they feel big in the moment. Or maybe you get sick at the wrong time in life and have to take off from work and you can't really afford to do that. So worldly grit is when something interrupts our goals, our expectations, our confidence, our hope, our motivation. It's a distraction from progress and plans. Um, as you'll see in the, the insert today, the next steps aren't at the end. They're kind of woven throughout the message. So each next step is for you. Otherwise, this sermon would be two hours and 21 minutes long. But I'm trusting that you will uh, do some of these things uh, this week based on how you've been inspired, hopefully inspired by this message. So... The bi biblical basis of today's message comes from Joseph. I'm going to do something a little different. This is why it would have taken us two hours to do this sermon. The story of Joseph in Genesis is 14 chapters long. It takes about an hour, 10 minutes to read it out loud at a comfortable pace. So are you ready? <laughs> We're not going to do that. I am going to dare to try to summarize the story of Joseph in 120 seconds or less. Don't time me because then you'll be focused on your clock. But I'm going to try to summarize all 14 chapters plus a little in 120 seconds. So I'm going to get a little drink of water here. And then I'm going to read this summary. Ready? Joseph, the next to youngest son of Jacob, grandson of Isaac, and great-grandson of Abraham. He was his father's favorite. At 17, he brashly told his father and brothers about his dreams, where symbolically they all bowed down to him, and God would make him prominent over them. He should have kept the dreams to himself, for now at least. Dad rebuked him. Then the brothers jealously planned to murder him, but they decided after throwing him down in a hole, they would instead sell him in as a slave into a passing caravan headed to Egypt, of all places. They reported to their daddy Jacob that Joseph had been killed by ferocious marauding animals. What that animal was, we may never know, but it was allegedly deadly. Jacob said he would grieve the loss of Joseph to his grave. In Egypt, Joseph served, as an army, served an army officer named Potiphar. Joe was so industrious, reliable, and full of godly integrity that he was soon promoted to look after all of Potiphar's affairs. Potiphar's wife, meanwhile, began to make strong sexual advances towards Joseph. Joseph, in his gritty, godly character, refused all of her carnal demands. She, furious at his rejection, feeling scorned, made false criminal accusations against Joe. He was arrested, jailed, and fired from his elite job and lifestyle. However, in prison, his grit somehow gained him a reputation as an interpreter of dreams. When Pharaoh, the king of Egypt himself, was troubled by bad dreams, Joe was brought to counsel by Pharaoh. Um, Joseph, as always, interpreted the dreams of the Pharaoh correctly. Seven fat years of harvest abundance would be followed by seven years of drought and famine. The Pharaoh installed Joseph as prime minister of the nation. 
Under Joe's energetic and godly leadership, ample crop surpluses were raised and stored. When the famine struck, Egypt had plenty of food to sell the people. Perhaps the most touching scene unfolds next, when the brothers come to Egypt to buy food. They didn't recognize Joe, but he recognized them. Leaving out a lot of intriguing details, Joseph forgives them. He magnanimously moves his father and brothers to Egypt. Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were given the same prominence as their dad in the affairs of the tribes of Israel in Egypt. Joseph died at 110 and was buried in Egypt. The end. Did anybody time that? <laughs> I'm not like the guy at the end of those commercials that talk really fast. I slur a little too much for that. So this is a story we're using as a backdrop. There are many components to it, but all four of these gritty elements that we're about to talk about are going to be uh, evident in the story of Joseph um, and his family. So um, next step, number two, throughout this week, read that story slowly and carefully and think about how it overlaps with our lives and try to understand, you know, we jump from Joseph being in jail to being in Pharaoh's court within a verse. What, what about Joseph's character? What about all of that makes that happen? And what about that can we emulate? Some of it's guesswork, but I think he's a godly man full of integrity that we can emulate. So anyway, the four letters of grit. We're going to start with G. Uh, grief. Grief is the first word, and this one's not an easy one to unpack. It's going to be a very short unpacking of this word. But grief, we think of what when we think of grief? Death. Grief doesn't only happen when there is death. Grief happens simply, not simply, but simply when there's loss. When we lose something. This loss could come in many forms, large and small. I lose my car keys. Do I grieve? Or when someone goes through a divorce. Perhaps it's an adult child who has cut off connection with you. Or loss of innocence due to an addiction or abuse. Or maybe it's that my son has moved away. And is daring to start a career in Georgia in broadcasting. And by the way, he arrived there yesterday. And he has a job at a TV station for Fox 28 in Savannah, Georgia, as a sports broadcaster. And he begins tomorrow. But there's a loss. There's a grief that comes with good news sometimes, too. What about a death of a friend or a family member? Those are real. Those loss trigger a deep grief response. But the smaller things, sometimes it's just a brief grief response, but it's still grief. How, how can we say losing my car keys is grief? Well, let's, let's unpack it a little bit. Um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she's a woman that developed this theory based on a lot of research with a lot of statistical and reliable and uh, good uh, research to back up this thing called the five stages of grief. How many have heard of that before, the five stages of grief? Kubler-Ross has kind of been recently put into this category of pop psychology, and I want to make sure you don't put her there. Her theory is sound. And she doesn't refer to them as stages that you move through in a linear fashion. She refers to them as more like characteristics that she says, if you don't go through all five of these stages well, you are not moving through grief very well. And you won't reach this stage called self-reliance, which isn't relying on self as much as it is understanding who I am and looking in a mirror and not seeing through a glass darkly. Is she a Christian? I don't know, but she writes extensively about Isaiah in Scripture and quotes Isaiah quite a lot. But the five stages we know as denial, anger, bargaining, uh, Depression and acceptance. Those are kind of correct, but what she called the denial stage was shock. When we get the news, when I step on that dog toy in the middle of the night on my way to make sure the door's locked, I suddenly forget I'm on my way to go to the door to make sure it's locked because I'm feeling the pain in my bare foot of this dog toy that has all these sharp pointy things sticking out of it. I don't know why we don't throw it away. But I have to go through a little bit of grief in that moment. I go through the shock. We call it denial. It's not necessarily denial. It's shock. 
And then the next stage we call anger, it's not really anger, she would say, it's the emotional stage. The emotion, after the shock, the emotional impact of what just happened is what we have to deal with. Then we bargain with it, like, man, if we just throw away all these dog toys, if we just do this or if we just do that, we start this bargaining session. Um, sometimes it's with God when the grief is deeper and heavier. We might even go through a depression. I'm not going to get depressed over the fact I step on a dog toy in the middle of the night. But when my dad passed away, I went through a pretty, I wouldn't say clinical depression, but it was hard for me. I even went through guilt, which is a, some would say that's a separate stage of its own, but she puts it in the depression stage that we would go through a season of like, is it my fault when a young man in my youth group 20 years ago-ish took his own life? I was his mentor, and I never saw it coming. But I went through the guilt a lot. And then the last stage we call acceptance. That's probably a good word for it. She called it self-reliance, where we come to terms with the reality that this change has happened. I have to adjust to the new normal. And as Peter Gabriel would sing in his song called Grief, um, life goes on. Everybody else is going on with their life around us. Well, I'm grieving. It just, time stops for us. But how do I get to the point where life goes on and on and on, and I'm okay with that? That's one of the goals of going through the grief process. Through, like our song sang this morning, through it all. We have to go through those five stages. Grief can come in many forms. We won't go into all of it, but I think we get the idea um, what Kubler-Ross says is that a healthy way of optimum growth and living comes when we successfully navigate all five stages. There is no timeline, there is no order, and no measure of intensity. But she says we can live life fully until we die while realizing that death itself is the final stage of growth in this life. Kubler-Ross. Consider the loss in between the lines of the story of Joseph. When he's in the pit, when he's in prison, his dad? What kind of grief did his dad go through? How about even Reuben? When you read the story this week, look for Reuben's response. He didn't really want this to happen to his brother. He wanted to rescue his brother, but he was outvoted. The grief he went through, we could read it in the words. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. So they listened to Reuben, apparently, because they didn't kill him. When Reuben returned to the cistern later, he saw that Joseph was not there. He tore his clothes and grieved. Dad, when he found out about his son being gone, he said, no. He cried out, no. I won't be comforted. In mourning, I will go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him and dedicated himself to mourning till he died himself. Is that what happened? You know the end of the story. It's not exactly what happened. So um, I'm going to skip ahead because we're going to run out of time this morning. That is the first one, uh, grieving. God's people grieve. There isn't a person in this room that hasn't experienced loss. Probably death. Loss of getting news of a terminal illness. All those goals and dreams and hopes. I've lost all those if I've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And the grief that me and my loved ones are going to go through. I haven't been diagnosed with a terminal illness, hypothetically speaking. But we go through these when there's loss. And that, that's the point I want us to be sure here. I want us to hear this morning. The Bible uses a word that, that we've heard before. It's lament. Do we know what the word lament means? The word lament simply means deep grief or grief with agony. It's like grief on steroids. It's a, a heavy duty kind of grief. And there's a book in the Bible that's a funeral for a whole city. And it's called Lamentations. It's a book of grief. We see countless numbers of Bible characters grieving in Scripture, not just in the Joseph story. But as you're reading Scripture and you need somebody to connect with you, relate to you, read Psalm 23. 
even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And there are plenty of other references, and I'd be glad to help you look for those if you want. Here's a simple search you could do. Search Lament Psalms. Lament Psalms. And prayerfully read them, and maybe you'll personally connect with the deep emotions that are in those psalms. There are several of them. So that's your next steps in your handouts. So Google search Lament Psalms. Prayerfully read them if grief is a topic that's close to your heart this day. The R... The R stands for relational problems. Relational problems. People come into the counseling office regularly because of relationship problems. And everybody experiences them, but everybody experiences them in their own unique and personal way. They're different for everybody how we experience our relational problems. This is a big Subject. It's broad. We could talk about many issues between one person and another in a marriage, parent to child, parent to sandwich generation, children and parents, and how hard it is to balance that out. And we could talk about the person that self-harms. Well, that's not a relationship. They're doing something to themselves, whether it's an addiction or cutting or something like that. It's usually because of relationships. It's because of something gone bad in the relationships of their lives, often in family. Sometimes we see people in the counseling office that are there because they've been told to go by someone else. They've been scapegoated by the family, and that creates a whole new set of relationship issues, feeling like the one blamed for all the problems. So we'll see that kind of relationship problem. Um, but relationships are what drive people to counseling, often. When it's a marriage relationship in trouble, it's too late by the time they get to counseling. So if your marriage is, is struggling, even if it's through in communications or, or something, maybe going finding a Christian counselor, it's a good time before the norm that it's too late once, once uh, it ends up in counseling. So people go to counseling because they sometimes usually want to see change, but often it's about someone else. But the best kind of counseling happens when someone comes to counseling and wants to look at themselves and think and talk about what can I change about me that's going to make this relationship better. Um, there is only one person, by the way, on this planet that you can change. You know who that is, right? Yourself. So dare to go there if you're seeking advice from a counselor or a friend or a pastor. We look at scripture, the essence of the Bible is full, full, full of relationships. And they're usually messy. Look at the story of Joseph and all the messiness there between the brothers, father to children, and the grief they have to deal with. It's messy. We see in the Bible not just messy individuals, messy family systems, messy churches, messy nations, messy friendships. Why do we think God wanted all this mess recorded in his word that's divine? Why? Do we ever think about that? Why is that there? I think it's because God wants us to be able to connect with his people. Scripture describes Elijah as a man just like us. The Bible wants us to see these people as people like us. So we can relate to them. We can dive into the word and we can get understanding. And God's going to speak to us through his word, through the relationships of scripture. Even the messy ones. Sometimes more so through the messy ones. So dare to look for the relationships in scripture. Um, and again, Reuben conflicted with his brothers before they threw him in the pit. And that had to be hard on those relationships. So I would encourage you to... Um, this week, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you want to expand on that, look at chapters 12 and chapter 14. They're about spiritual gifts. And they bookend another chapter that we call the, the love chapter. They're all about relationships. Chapter 12 has this little verse that I've shared with you all before this verse. The parts of the body that we consider to be weaker are indispensable. The body is us. It's the church. And no one in this room is dispensable. 
Nobody connected to anybody in this room is dispensable. And sometimes we look at people as less than us, or we think they look at us as less than them. But this is the word of God. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 22 and read that. Spend some time meditating on that in regards to relationships in our lives. God's called us all, similarly and equally. The third word, just to keep on moving, is isolation. The I stands for isolation in grit today. A lot of people come to counseling because they feel isolated. Isolation is different than solitude and loneliness. So let, let me just briefly ex explain that. Um, solitude is healthy. It's intentional. It's an intentional time of aloneness for refreshment, restoration, enjoyment of the mind, body, soul, spirit. That's solitude. When we're alone with a good purpose. Loneliness is a feeling. Loneliness is a feeling which often comes from isolation. So what is isolation? Isolation is an unhealthy, but intentional or unintentional time of aloneness, which often is associated with higher, ready? These are some clinical things. It's often associated with higher anxiety, depression, self-harming behaviors, even suicide. Also, sleeplessness and reduced immune functions have been shown to be connected to adverse health effects of isolation. Why do people isolate? Scripture repeatedly calls us into community. Yet we see Jesus go away to pray a lot, it says. We see Elijah run off to a mountain to be alone. He's actually isolating. And we could talk about that story a little bit too. But Jesus didn't isolate. He went away to be with his father. So he was looking for some solitude, some time to restore his batteries. And he models that for the rest of us. Isolation is unhealthy. It's when we pull back because nobody gets us. No one's going to understand. I'm so enraged or I'm so sad. I'm so lonely. I'm so lost. I'm so fill in the blank, disappointed. But isolation... Um, also connects with all the other categories of grit that we're talking about today. It, it connects with the first four stages of grief as well. People tend to isolate when there's loss. No one's going to understand what I am going through. And specifically, you're right. Nobody ever in the history of man has been through exactly what you're going through. But you are surrounded by people that have been through things that have been just as intense. And chances are good you've been, you've been surrounded by people that have been through worse things than you. And I learned that from a man that was not Christian, in college, handsome dude named Rich. He had scars all over the one side of his face. On this side, he was like one handsome dude. And yeah, he was... A good-looking guy, funny, everybody was drawn to him. But the other side, all this scarring. He was in a terrible automobile accident. He was one of the happiest guys I ever met. So I asked him, how can you be so happy? How are you so positive? And, you know, you have this to carry around. We were close enough friends that we could ask about that. And he said, this was bad. This was a really, I should have died in this accident. But he said, I learned through that accident that no matter how bad I have it, there's somebody that has it worse. So it's my goal to reach out for that person. He wasn't a Christian. But he modeled Christian principles very well to me, a life lesson that I learned from him. So how does this all relate to isolation? When we, when we have things happen to our lives, we can, at human nature, tend to isolate, pull away in an unhealthy way. So I want to encourage us today, if you think you might be isolating or you know somebody that is, if you know somebody that is, be that person that reaches out to them, knowing that being alone for too long can be a bad thing. Think about how you could reach out to them, maybe a simple text message. We're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. If you're the one that's mourning, if you're the one that's suffering and you're pulling away in isolation, then maybe... You can pick up the phone and text somebody and say, I was just thinking about you today. And who knows what will come from that text. Chances are very good that somebody wants in, in your life. Who is that? Pray about that. Philip Zimbardo in Psychology Today wrote this. 
There is more destructive influence on physical and mental, and I would add spiritual health, from isolation of you from me and us from them. That's his quote. He points out in the article to studies that show loneliness is a central agent of depression, central agent of paranoia, schizophrenia, even things like rape and suicide, mass murder, and many diseases. It contributes to a shorter lifespan. Lonely people don't live as long. Jacob, Joseph's dad, seemed to head towards this when he said, when scripture says he tore his clothes and mourned for many days, all of his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to let them in. And that's where he said, no, in mourning I will go down to my grave to my son. So he wept. And others in scripture mourned, others in scripture were tempted to isolate. We could look at the story of Jeremiah, David, Paul. What about Jesus when he was hanging on the cross? What did he say? Why have you forsaken me? That sounds like a comment that's coming from someone feeling alone. And that's our Savior. So if he experienced that, why wouldn't it be normal for us to experience that? But we are not hopeless people. I'm going to share one more heavy one, and then we're going to get to the good stuff for the last 10 minutes. Trauma. The P stands for trauma. I'm not a trauma therapist, but it often comes in the room with clients. Trauma is defined as a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. And notice it doesn't say something that happens to you. It says experience. Sometimes trauma is self-inflicted. So it could be a deeply distressing, dis disturbing external experience or internal experience. One that comes from outside of ourselves or one that we did because of, yeah, I made a mistake while driving. And it's, you know, it's called an accident for a reason. It's an accident. But trauma still might be in the room. Look at Joseph's life. We're just going to go right there. Where were the moments of trauma for him? He was thrown in a pit and left to die. So what's your pit? What's my pit? I have pits that are hard for me to think about being in. He was also thrown in prison. When you're in these places, you're out of control. Control is somebody else's over your life. And that is part of the trauma. So what's our prison? What's our pit? Do we have multiple prisons or pits? The other question I have, is trauma common to everyone? What might be traumatic to you might not be traumatic to somebody else. There's different factors that make it hard to define what is trauma and what's a crisis and you know, whatever else it might be called. Um, but trauma is that thing. That, that's actually a pit of a cistern that could have been like the one that Joseph was thrown into. Um, but scripture tells us that maybe it's common to man, is what scripture tells us. And where else does, does scripture say something that's common to man? Paul says in 1 Corinthians that no temptation has seized us except what is common to man. It's, it's a phrase that we hear in scripture. It's a concept we hear in scripture that we understand that trauma does happen. We live in a broken world that's full of messiness and stuff that could cause us to fear, cause us to isolate. Um, but we dare to go on and we dare to move forward knowing that trauma can happen. It can happen at any age. It can affect everyone differently. Um, and you and I might be caught up in the same frightening experience, but we might have completely different reactions. It might be more traumatic to me than to you. I just want to normalize it, though. You know, we all go through all four of these things, the GRIT and acronym for the, the morning. We just don't want to forget that we're not alone. When we isolate, we tend to think, I'm alone. But we're not alone. You ever hear the Latin word misericordia? Misericordia, it's a college up in Dallas, Pennsylvania. Um, do you know what the word misericordia means? It's a Latin word for mercy, for compassion. It literally means misery loves company. To put it in a biblical context, we are to mourn with those who mourn. 
We like being around people that get us. But it's sometimes in life we feel like no one gets us. But misericordia to God's people. May we all experience this. Today's character, Joseph, serves as a role model for someone who makes the most of life even though trauma has happened to him. He doesn't go away and curl up. He dives in headlong into ministry in Potiphar's house. And then in Pharaoh's court, he becomes the prime minister of a nation. He's God's man in an, an, a pagan nation in leadership. God did that with Joseph in spite of his trauma. I think Joseph had that grit, that godly grit that we can access, that courage and resolve. So let's take a look for the response to, for God's people. Um, I have three things, and I didn't, I didn't intend this, but they make another acronym. It's T-W-O, so two. There's three things, but the acronym's two. Guess I didn't think that through. But I won't be traumatized by that. Um, the first one Ken talked about a couple weeks ago, thankfulness. How do we respond to all the grit in life? The ungodly grit, the grit that Satan wants to use to break us down. Being people of gratitude is a challenge, even for God's people, because mess happens. And grit happens. I'm saying that very carefully. Grit happens. And it's true. So what do, how do we be thankful people? What Scripture shows us over and over and over again is God reminding Moses, tell the people this. Remind them of what we did in the past. How I rescued you from Egypt. Remind them of when we parted the Red Seas. Remind them of when water came from a rock. He's telling Moses to tell the people to look back at the good things that God did in their lives. And out of that can come a thankful heart. So take some time this week. Look back on your life. Now, Ken said the other week, with very, this, this is true. He, he said, we're not supposed to look back at the grit, the problems, the mistakes. But there's a reason the windshield in our car is this big and the mirror is this big. The mirror is there. So we are supposed to look back a little bit. But we got to look forward and move forward into a future with hope and excitement and enthusiasm and trust and faith. And it's hard to do that if I'm stuck in all the junk from back there. So look back in the past to the things that make us thankful people. What has God done for you, for your family, for your church, for the things that you're involved in? Um, David Steindl Rast said these words, It is not joy that makes us grateful. It is gratitude that makes us joyful. Gratitude is the thing that leads us to being people of joy. So if you're missing joy in your life, maybe upping the thankfulness. And I'm speaking to me this morning. Sorry, I just smacked the mic. My bad. Um, I'm speaking to me this morning. This message is for me. So being a thankful person is not always my first go-to. So I know I'm talking to me this morning. So please don't feel preached at. I'm, I'm with you out there. So Ken spoke on this a couple weeks ago. He said, embrace joy and peace. Inner joy is not caused by outward circumstances. These are Ken's words. So no matter what junk is happening to you this day in your life, you can still be a thankful person. Don't worry about anything. We heard that from our worship team this morning. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done in the past. That's from Philippians 4, 6. We heard that in our last series. I had a friend in college, her name was Tracy. She had this thing she called thank therapy. She had a rough past. She had an abortion. She was sexually assaulted multiple times. She's, she had been through lots and lots of junk. And one of the things that helped her turn her life around was her relationship with God, 
that did turn her life around. But the tool that she used that she said was most beneficial for her was what she called thank therapy. She kept a journal where nothing in that journal, uh, there was nothing in that journal except things that she was thankful for. And she added to that journal every day at least three things a day. So I would encourage you, invoke thank therapy into your life if you need more joy in your life. So being people of thanksgiving, that's one. The W stands for waiting. This could be a sermon in and of itself. Um, I tend to be more impatient than patient. You could put up that little graphic. Um, but this is our goal as God's people. Same spelling, different punctuation. This is our goal. We need to improve our skills in waiting. How many of us are good at sitting in the doctor's office, not knowing how long it's going to be till the doctor calls you back? And then when you go back, it's not the doctor, it's the nurse and does her like, how tall are you? How much do you weigh? Stuff like you could do on your own in the waiting room while you're waiting. But you go back there and then you wait again for the doctor to come in. How many of you are good at this? Can you tell I'm not? Um, how many of you are good at getting in the passing lane on the highway, then suddenly that lane is the one that's going slower than the other lane? How many of you are good at this? Or how many of you are good at waiting for your child to be ready to go? Or your wife? Or your husband? How many of you are good at pushing the elevator button more than once? You know what I'm talking about. We're not good at waiting in this culture. We switch lanes in the grocery store and then end up waiting longer. How many of these things make us laugh? Not right away, do they? We grieve a little bit, don't we? They make us angry. They shock us just a little bit. Um, yeah, we can go on and on. I can't wait for that app to download, I upload, whatever. I can't wait for my computer to warm up. We live in a hurry-up culture. So how does this fit when we have a Savior that tells us, tells us to go away and spend time with the Lord? Sit at the feet of Jesus. Read scripture. Pray. We have too much to do. We're too busy. We're not really good at waiting. God doesn't call his people to hurry up in scripture. Did you ever notice that? He calls us to patience and other fruit of the spirit. He calls us to wait on him. Psalm 27, 4 says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall renew your strength. Uh, they shall mount up as wings, uh, with wings as eagles if they wait on the Lord. That's for us. That's from Isaiah. I found at least 20 scriptures that tell us to wait on the Lord. And when we wait on the Lord, let's not assume that he's idle or he doesn't care if we don't hear his answer right away. This is really important for God's people. To wait on the Lord is not to assume the worst or worry or fret or make demands or take control back from God. And waiting is not inactivity. It's an intentional action, waiting on the Lord. It's a sustained effort, says Max Licato, to stay focused on God through prayer and belief, no matter what circumstances are around us. The, words, the word tells us to wait in, in worship, and then he will work for God's people. I want to give one example. I know we're running out of time here, but I'm, I want to make sure we share these things. Daniel, one of the most dramatic examples of waiting in Scripture. I'm, I'm reading from a Max Licato book. He says, this Old Testament prophet kept his mind on God for an extended period. Daniel did. His people have been oppressed and in exile for almost 70 years. Daniel entered into a time of prayer on their behalf. During this time of prayer, he abstained from tasty food, meat and wine. He labored in prayer. He persisted, pleaded, agonized. There was no response from God. Then on day 22... After three weeks, God broke through. An angel of God appeared to Daniel. He revealed to Daniel the reason for the long delay. Are you ready for this? Daniel's prayer was heard on the first day, said the angel. Your prayer was heard the day you made your prayer. So why the delay? The angel said he was dispatched with a response on that very day. And the angel said this, That very day I was sent here to meet you, Daniel, but for 21 days the mighty evil spirit who overrules the kingdom of Persia blocked my path. 
Then Michael, one of the top officers of the heavenly army, came to help me. So then I was able to break through these spirit rulers of Persia. You see the difference? From our point of view, God's inactive. From our point of view, life's out of control. From our point of view, things aren't happening at the speed we want them to happen with. But our point of view is limited. We live in a temporal world. This is just a blip in eternity. The eternal world, the heavenly world, is doing battle when God's people pray. And in our timeline, it might take 22 days or longer for our prayers to be answered. But God is active. He's sending his warriors to do battle on our behalf. I don't know about you, but I want a filthy angel. I don't mean filthy in the worldly sense. I mean one that's battle-worn, dirty, his sword's all nicked up. I want to keep praying and have the angel that's looking out for me doing battle for me because I know what damage the enemy can do to me. I've experienced it. And I wouldn't want God's people to go through that too. We pray, we wait. It may seem like nothing's happening. But in the heavenly realms, Scripture says we are not fighting a battle of flesh and blood when we pray, but against the rulers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then James reinforces this when he writes, the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. So go be right with the Lord. Ask for forgiveness for the messy parts of your life. Be righteous in the eyes of the Lord so your prayers will be powerful and effective. This is calling God's community, us. This is pretty awesome. We're part of his battle plan. And we can go on and on. So I'm just going to skip ahead. What if Daniel gave up, lost faith? What if he didn't continue to pray and wait for the Lord to come through? What if he walked away? What if Joseph gave up, lost faith, didn't continue in prayer and wait for the Lord to come through? What if he walked away? What if you gave up, lost faith, didn't continue in prayer and wait for the Lord to come through? What if you walked away? Don't give up. Don't walk away. Your prayers cause the Holy Spirit into action. The last one, I don't want to cut this one short. I know we're out of time. But the last one is O, stands for one anothering. One anothering. It's one word. It's hyphenated. One anothering is a term coined by Richard Meyer in his book. He wrote these books for small groups. He has three of them. And, and maybe we'd be benef benefit from them in our small groups here. But... It's called One Anothering, Richard Meyer. It's, it's all about loving one another and how to do that well, how to do it even better than I do it now. And, and I just want to say, we are doing it well here. I, I hold you responsible for something, church. I hold you responsible. Carissa and Ian, I hope you're listening. If my children are successful at any level in life, if my son is successful as a sports broadcaster, if he's successful as a man of God in Savannah, Georgia, if my daughter is successful as a freshman at Liberty University, it's partly because of you. You have one anothered my children, church. From children's ministry, through youth group, through the young adult ministries, through every individual that's spoken to my kids' lives, I've needed a community to help me raise my kids. And it's partly your responsibility. So I thank you. It's partly New Covenant's responsibility and Gingrich's Mennonite Church and Cornwall United Methodist Churches, the churches where I was a youth pastor. They spoke into the lives of my kids. And when you love my kids, you love me. So thanks for one anothering me and each other. We do do this well. Wednesday, I came into the church to work on this sermon that is going to end up being an hour and 23 minutes if I don't hurry up. But I sat in the young adult room and wondered what all the cars in the parking lot were for. Men's Bible study, at least 25 cars here. Those men uh, grieved loss of sleep by coming in here at like quarter after four in the morning for Bible study. I don't know what time you guys show up, but you're all here by the time I got here at seven o'clock. 
they left, and then a bigger crowd arrived. All these women showed up for women's Bible study, and there were at least 50 cars, I actually counted, at least 50 cars in the parking lot for women's Bible study. And they were bringing kids with them, so they were grieving the fact that they had to bring their kids to Bible study with them. But they were here, and then the staff was here, and then later in the day, Awana was here, and that night the young adult group was here. All this powerful ministry going on, all this one-anothering on Wednesdays. Hundreds and hundreds of people were ministered to on Wednesday here at this church. This is an important aspect of God's community. And Dan talked about this last week when he talked about how much God loved him through his church and how big a difference that made in his life. It's important for us to remember that here's a, here's a way to put this thought. Get in the cloud. Get in the cloud. We are not necessarily called to be in a cloud on the internet. We are called to be in a great cloud of witnesses. And you are part of that. And thank you for being there for me and my family. The scripture says, if I can find it in my notes, that um, I, I lost it. I'm not going to take time to find it. But we are... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those who went before us and us, let us also lay aside every weight, all the grit that so easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Meanwhile, all along, one another in each other. I have to wrap it up. I have a couple other interesting points, but in conclusion... I say this, grit happens. Godly grit is up to us. Ungodly grit's gonna happen to us. Abe Lincoln said, when you reach the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. Thankfulness, waiting, and one anothering are today's three tools, your true grit, but there are many more tools, turning to scripture, worshiping, praying, that those, all these things, these are just three tools to add to your toolbox. There are more. Implement them this week. Take time reading scripture. Look at Joseph and see how he implemented these tools of, of grit. They will help us. And use the um, things in your bulletin, the next steps. They might be ways that would help you grow in your relationships in life. So may we be people of true grit and not give in to the grit of the enemy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for words that you've uh, given us this morning. We pray your blessing on them and that your Holy Spirit would magnify what you have to say and do in our lives. Um, this day and every day, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Not lose battles from the grid of the enemy. When others look at our lives, God, may we be seen as somebody who lives a godly life our narrative be one that points to you. God, we pray that you would bless each person in this room and those who watch online with your empowerment and encouragement and fill us all with the Holy Spirit that we, we may go from here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.